Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hello, cinephile fans. This is John and... Steve, and we're here to do a joint preview for our next film. Yeah, this is one we've been waiting to talk about for a little while now on The Cinephile. Certainly has come up over the, the last few years. And now, with the unfortunate passing of Sidney Poitier, it has come very much into our purview. And that is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And uh, as is standard between you and I, Steve, we've taught, we, we're already knowing that it's going to be split into two parts because of so much that we have to discuss in this film. Well, and it's so funny because we just finished recording part one. And while you and I both love the movie, we had a lot where we didn't agree. And yeah. that made for just a fantastic conversation. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to episode two. But this week is episode one. We'll be dropping it later on on Friday. And Steve, what's our short this week? So one of our patrons asked us to fix the Oscars. And while I had a couple of thoughts on how to make the Oscars better, you had a whole plan. And so if you go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles right now, you can hear the John Roca plan to fix the Oscars. And I think it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's well, you know, I've been thinking about it for quite some time, but it's a fantastic suggestion from one of our patrons. And we appreciate all our patrons. Remember, you can go to patreon.com 
slash the cinephiles to uh to sign up to see any of the tiers that you can be a part of and steve where can they go if they want to purchase or view guess who's coming to dinner before we talk about it this friday i'm glad you asked john because we have a website that's cinephiles.net where every single movie we've ever reviewed is there you can actually listen to all the episodes there and there are links to amazon where you could buy the blu-ray maybe there's a special edition or you could just stream the film through amazon video definitely if you haven't watched the that's how you should do it. Absolutely. This is our greatest preview ever. It should win an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Join us this Friday as Steve Morris and I tackle Guess Who's Coming to Dinner on the Cinephiles. I don't understand that. Joanna said you're going to be married no matter what we might think about it. Well, that's not the case. Unless you two approve, and without any reservations at all, there won't be any marriage. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. I guess I have to leave in the flub now because I was laughing through the repeat. You kind of have to. It's the way it works. <laughs> uh, hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California. And um, I don't owe you a thing, man. So I'm excited to be getting into our film today, Steve. Sadly, in honor of the loss of one of the greatest actors that ever graced our planet, but certainly a film that uh, we are very blessed to revisit, my friend. I think grace is a great word for the great Sidney Poitier mm -hmm. because he just he moves through the world and moves through all his performances with tremendous grace. And this movie is no exception. Of course, it's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. We already spoke about one of his other films in 1967, yeah. which was In the Heat of the Night, which we just re-released. And uh, this is directed by Stanley Kramer. We talked about Stanley Kramer a long, long time ago when we did yeah. Judgment at Nuremberg. And so I, want, I just want to give a refresher a, a little bit on him because he's an interesting person. He started off as a producer and produced a whole bunch of groundbreaking films like Death of a Salesman, like High Noon, Wild yeah. One with Marlon Brando. And then he becomes a director. And this is a director who wants to make films about issues. There's no question. It is yeah. very clear what his films are about. His first movie directing we talked about when we did our intro for Sidney Poitier is the defiant ones yeah I mean he's almost and I feel like Richard Donner kind of picked up the baton from Stanley Kramer and kind of did the same things with his movies not quite classic classics but certainly for a lot of people modern classics but always a social point of view kind of bubbling underneath the surface with a lot of the stuff that he did or he threw it in there I Think of Lethal Weapon 2 with the idea of the tuna and the dolphins sure. and whatever. And so it's nice to see that there are directors who understand that their medium can be used to change the world for a positive uh, ending. Absolutely. And I, what I would say is that the difference is, is that Stanley Kramer's uh, point is not bubbling under the surface. Yeah, it's it true. is That's right on the surface. Um, <laughs> his next film is On the Beach, which is about nuclear war. Then Inherit mm. the Wind, which is about oh. evolution and religion. That. Then Judgment of Nuremberg, which you and I covered years ago, which is obviously about the Holocaust. Yeah. Then the one movie that I would say is not really about uh, anything. Well, I won't say that. It's a How mad, mad, mad world. It's about getting older. It's about I guess that's true. like you know, you're being pushed aside by society, which we have a snippet of in this movie. Oh, we, yeah. We'll get to that scene. We'll get to that scene. But yeah, the, that I think that film, for all the comedy, 
it's really about needing to feel important and maybe even a commentary on people chasing wealth before we're about to see the explosion of the need of wealth and how it corrupts our society in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, and of course, then Ship of Fools, which is war, follow, mm. followed by Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is obviously another film dealing with issues of race. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny. There's a book that I know I've mentioned before, which is Pictures at a Revolution, which is about 1967 and about the five movies that went up for Best Picture, mm. which are The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, Dr. Doolittle, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. And so I read the book when it first came out, and then I've now gone through it three times to listen to the sections that are about these movies, because we've done The Graduate, and yeah. we did In the Heat of the Night. And so this time I went through it again, focusing on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. <laughs> At some point, I will probably do Bonnie and Clyde, and I'll do do it again. Yeah, <laughs> It is a really good book. I doubt we're ever doing Dr. Doolittle. No, I doubt it as well. Um, uh, let me give you a little bit of pre-production. So yeah. here's the story Stanley Stanley Kramer said he said that when they're working on it's a mad 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 world uh, he's having dinner with the screenwriter William Rose who he'd worked with a bunch and Rose said hey I have an idea about a movie about a white girl who travels to Africa and falls in love with a black man and then they decide to get married and he brings her home to meet his parents wow and Stanley Kramer said that doesn't sound very interesting but what if you flipped it and made and that she brings him home to her white liberal parents Rose says this is totally not true. He <laughs> says that he was working on this story since 1960, long before he ever brought it up with Stanley Kramer. So we can decide which one we believe, but it does, uh, it does point out that all of, many of these stories we tell on the cinephiles, yes. that's just what they said. That right, doesn't right, actually right. necessarily mean it's true. <laughs> um, apparently, Kramer and Rose had lots and lots of arguments about the script. Wow. Um, the first thing is, is that William Rose hadn't lived in the United States in 20 years, and he maybe had a slightly let's say old fashioned view about yeah. race relations and uh, what was actually going on in the late sixties in the United States. So are you telling me that Stanley Kramer added the dancing meat salesman? Is that what you're telling me? Is that the Stanley? Is that what you're that, saying? That in fact is a combo of the dancing meat salesman and Stanley Kramer. <laughs> he kept pushing him to do more, do something fun. And that's what they came up with. Well, <laughs> <laughs> That might be the most out of touch moment in the whole movie. Um, well, dated for sure. Yeah, um, I think it was dated in 1967. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't uh, there. And and if you looked at William Rose's original script, like he described Tilly's character as a darkie. You Oof, know, yikes. there's there's things. He, there was a whole thing about going after Muhammad Ali from for changing his name from Cassius Clay. Wow. There was you know the script was full of kind of stereotypes, which Stanley Kramer helped to pull out. And the biggest thing that Kramer changed was he wanted to stack the deck in Sidney Poitier's favor mm. so that a lot of the making him so perfect, and we'll get into that, is yeah. coming from Stanley Kramer. Gotcha. But the other thing Kramer decided is that he already knew who the actors were going to be, and he basically was, if I don't get these actors, there's no movie. Wow. Had to be Sidney Poitier. Uh-huh. Um, and he went to him. There was no script at this time and says, Sydney, I'm thinking about this doing this movie with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. And Sydney said, I'm in. Yeah, of course. No script. Just this is the idea. And now he had to get Hepburn and Tracy. And we need to talk a little bit about them. Yeah, let's do it. They've done eight films together. By this point. By this point. Yeah. This is their ninth. Tracy was estranged from his wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and- Steve. 
And the relationship with Estranged. Catherine Hepburn yeah. uh, is a really fascinating one. And one I think that we'll never really entirely know what was going on there. But I don't think we need to know, right? There's sometimes there are just two people that are meant to be with each other. And when they find each other, that's that. And yes, people get hurt. The other significant others get hurt. And unfortunately, that's the reality of life. You know, uh, Johnny Cash kind of uh, dismissing his first wife because the June Carter thing, it just was there. And sometimes, sadly, unfortunately, that's the game. But, you know, it, 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 they were meant to be together. And certainly you can tell that chemistry on screen here is absolutely magnetic between them. Um, and, and their relationship began in the 40s. Yeah. And at first it was kind of a rumor. And the tabloids would print little things about it. But it was... Yeah. Hollywood tried to keep its own secrets. Mm -hmm. By the 60s, it was fairly public. Yeah. You know, the New York Times wrote about this companionship between Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Um, and by that time, he was very ill by the 60s. Mm -hmm. And she was turning down jobs in order to take care of him. And we should say Spencer Tracy was a serious alcoholic. Yes. Um, and he was a, a blackout blind drunk. Yeah. Like he and, and to the point where MGM had a fake ambulance and fake medical team and a legal team standing by to pull him out of situations Wow, where he would get drunk and belligerent at a bar and they would rush this ambulance and the lawyers would be right there and they would shut it down. So it would be kept a secret. Wow. Um, and, you know, he, to say he, Spencer Tracy is one of the great actors of all time is kind of an understatement. And mm -hmm. to say that he is among the simplest and most straightforward Mm -hmm. of actors is also it, he's just telling you the truth he's just yeah. the truth you know yeah and by 67 all of his buddies had died you know mm -hmm. clark gable and humphrey bogart being the, his best two best friends they're gone mm -hmm. he was plagued by depression and anxiety and people there was a description of him that he was up in the clouds one minute and down in the dumps the next and it sounds like this is you know maybe it's bipolar disorder yeah. or you know like there and we we didn't have the tools to deal with mental right. health issues like this and it seems like the tool he used was booze yeah you know yeah. um there's also by the way rumors and in fact a recent book that says that in fact both hepburn and tracy were bisexual or both or had mm. and that they part of their relationship was built around that that there was but regardless they had a deep deep profound loving relationship yeah and Kramer wants them both to be in the movie and he goes to see them. And Spencer Tracy says, I'm too sick. Yeah. And he had recently been in the hospital for uh, his, uh, his lungs had filled with fluid and, and he's, you know, he says like, I can't make another movie. And Kramer says to him, Spencer, you can sit and be sick in that chair and rot, or you can get up and do something really important. <laughs> and he goes, okay. Yeah. Wow. So, so Sidney Poitier has never met Hepburn and Tracy. Mm -hmm. And so he goes to have dinner at their house. Um, and it sounds like it was uh, fairly awkward. <laughs> um, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn, it's so funny what, what this movie is about. Because it sounds like yeah. Catherine Hepburn was a sort of classic liberal elite. Yeah. Who, had, who had certain beliefs about civil rights. Yeah. But had never worked with an African-American, had no relationships with African-Americans, didn't really know much about them. And she said, 
just the classically tone deaf sort of things, the sort of we would call today like microaggressions. But yes, like she says, oh, I know a lot about Africans. I've been to Africa. Hmm. And the one thing I can say is those people are all all so warm and friendly. They just care. They all care so much about taking care of people. And I think when we get this whole civil rights thing out of the way, there are going to be so many black people or colored people in public relations. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I mean, and, and to give a little background with, I mean, Catherine Hepburn's mom was one of the leaders of the suffragette movement here yes. in the States. And yep. so, I mean, the suffragette movement has now been getting uh, kind of analyzed and explored here lately to see how these white women kept women of color out of their suffragette movement. Oh, and yeah. so, yeah, there's, so the exploration here is once again, in 2021, what you see happening now, again, with the me too movement, women of color uh, being kind of marginalized by white women in charge of the me too movement. These have been the accusations. We've seen that board just get dissolved a few weeks ago. So is, and no matter how much we've progressed, there's still issues here that need to be kind of highlighted and explored. And maybe maybe there should be a movie about this at some point down the road that is just as profound and effective and moving as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner to finally highlight this a little bit more so, so generations afterwards of women, white women who come, don't marginalize women of color in their organizations. You know, it's important. Well, and this is the thing is like... <laughs> People move forward a certain point, yeah. But we ever, but we all have blind spots. You know what I mean? Yes, like, true, like that's true. the the and unintended sometimes. Of course. Yeah. Well, and that's what I think is so fascinating about Catherine Hepburn's speech about people right. going into public relations is she thinks she's saying something really nice. Yeah, to her, that's as far as they should. That's incredible just to get that far. Yeah. Well, it, and she's giving them a compliment. You yes. people are all so warm and caring. You know, it's like it's like, uh, you know, saying you know, people saying to Jewish people like me, oh, you guys are you're so good with money, <laughs> you know, and it's like that sounds like a compliment and it kind yeah. of is, but it's also a stereotype, <laughs> you know, you make a mean taco, you people. You <laughs> like <the most. laughs> um, yeah. Um, look, I'm sure you I'm sure you make a mean taco. John. I don't make a mean taco, nor do <laughs> actually, I aspire to. <laughs> actually, that wouldn't be somewhere I'd say was your strong suit. <laughs> yeah, I agreed. I made so tacos, my girlfriend. <laughs> I made tacos night before last. They were delicious. I bet they were. You're a great chef. Oh, thank you. So um, the other thing, too, by the way, and this is from many, many sources, is apparently you would go to see spent Tracy and Hepburn and she would start talking, blabbing away, and then he would tell her to shut up and let the men talk. And it was apparently Tracy was a very domineering personality. Wow. And, and apparently, I mean, the love that Hepburn had for him was just immense and yeah. profound. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing uh, that's going on during this year before we're going into production is this is the year of loving versus Virginia, which is the Supreme court case oh, right. yes. about interracial marriage. And yes. when they went into production, the decision had not yet been made. Yeah. about whether or not uh, interracial marriage should be legal throughout the United States because it was illegal in like 17 states, which comes yeah. up in the film. Yeah, yeah. They shoot the first day, mm-hmm. and then they get shut down. Wow. And the reason they get shut down is because no insurance company will pay for Spencer Tracy, won't insure Spencer Tracy. Oh, right, because of his physical condition. And, and this is the thing. You know, we've talked about a bunch of movies where – the story behind the scenes is as interesting as the story on the yeah. screen. Things yeah, like yeah, Apocalypse yeah. Now and Jaws. And, and at those movies, it was just like crazy chaos going on. 
Yeah. I think that's that's true in this film too, but there's one story. And that story is Spencer Tracy. Yeah. And the story and the reality is it wasn't just that he was sick. He mm -hmm. was dying. Mm. And everyone kind of knew he was dying. Yeah. Like, and it was a real question of whether or not he was going to make it through this film. Yeah. Uh, this is a very, very sick guy. And so the mm -hmm. first thing that happened is Stanley Kramer and Catherine Hepburn forfeited their salaries in order to cover Spencer Tracy. So their salaries wow. became the insurance for the film. So if Spencer Tracy made it through the film, they get paid. Right. And if right. he doesn't make it through the film, they don't get paid. Um, this next thing they do is the entire schedule is built around Spencer Tracy's health. So he was only, his, his scenes would always be shot first in the morning. Mm -hmm. He would shoot only two to four hours in a day. That's all he could do. Wow. And they would do, you know, it's these things that we've talked about, like on, uh, back to the future, which is they shot his master, the master, and they shot his close up, and then he went home and then they shot everybody else in the scene. And then in the middle of the shoot, he started not showing up at all. Oh. And several days would go by that he was just too ill to come to the set. And wow. they just had to figure out what to shoot. Right. Um, and Hepburn is very, very protective mm -hmm. of him. She's always, she's working lines with him. She's making sure he's okay. She's watching his health. And when she, he gets too fatigued, she goes, that's it, Stanley. We're going home. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like as, as much as she was bossed around by by tracy mm. she showed up on the set and it's like we got to change this design this i would never have that <laughs> those flowers there this yeah. is is that where you're going to put the camera stanley <laughs> well i mean she's a woman of strength oh so yeah she respects a man of strength now their behavior or their relationship is their relationship neither one of us was inside of it we don't know you know the actual ins and outs of their relationship so however it's constructed is constructed but it's not surprising to me, especially after seeing being the Ricardos recently. I mean, mm. that's a woman who also was just as strong right. and powerful and alpha in in, in uh, Lucille Ball. But Desi could at times be a bit domineering with her in certain situations in certain ways. So it's just that kind of situation where, you know, we can look on from the outside. But right. For her, if it worked for them, then so be it. You know, and no surprise that Catherine wanted things a certain way. She's Absolutely. Powerful energy. I one more thing I want to say before yeah. we get into the movie, and I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this the right way. Okay. I'm going to have, they're not criticisms of the film, but I am going to point a few things out as we go, because this movie, mm -hmm. more than any movie we've ever done, I feel like this movie is making a rhetorical argument. And there's a whole bunch of stuff put in place in a very mm -hmm. specific way to strengthen a specific argument. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Can I help you say it? Yes. Are you saying that this is a film that walks the line between propaganda and a the and a regular film? No. I mean, okay. it, I think it, I think that's 100% true. Okay. What, what I'm saying is like you're you're in a debate class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're thinking how best to frame a political position to yes. persuade a group of people. Right. That's what I think Stanley Kramer uh, is doing is that okay. there's so much of the movie that is done in a specific way because yeah. he felt felt that would be most persuasive. Sure. Yeah. Which is a really interesting way to make a film. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see what you think after we're done with our discussion, because there's going to be a lot that we dive into. And I found myself this time around finding more um, alternate points of views to have about certain scenes and certain situations, which is magical when, you know, cause you're an older person looking back at a film like this, 
it changes your mind from what you've lived, you know? So I love that. So I'm me, looking me, me too. I had the same thing. Should we, should we yeah. tell how yeah. we, why we picked this movie? Yes, let's we, do it. We mentioned it on the live show, but I think it was really funny. So yeah, city party eight passed away. And, and as I usually do at these tragic moments, I text my friend, John <laughs> and say, what movie are we going to do? And then, you know, there's the thing where you are texting with someone and you each text something at the exact same moment. <laughs> this is the two texts. My text said, well, we definitely shouldn't do Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And at the same moment, John texted, we have to do Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. <laughs> and I said, well, it's really more Spencer Tracy's movie. And you said something, how dare you? Or, are you insane? Are you insane? <laughs> and, and I immediately went, well, now we have to do it. Yeah. So um, are you insane? This is Sidney Poitier's film. So yeah. yeah. And then this morning, you texted me saying, we have a lot. And I believe you spelled it out in capital letters. To talk <laughs> yes. about. Yeah. And I have no idea what that a lot is. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid this might be a two-parter, but we shall see. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> but 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 that's also why I'm kind of really now getting real excited to do this <laughs> film. Yes. And I say, let's just get into it. It starts with an airplane flying into San Francisco, and the music we hear is the song The Glory of Love, written by Billy Hill and sung by uh, Jacqueline Fontaine. That's the story of and the plane lands and we see Sidney Poitier and Catherine Houghton get off the plane. Mm -hmm. Catherine Houghton is Catherine Hepburn's niece. Yes. So apparently Stanley wanted someone that would look like Catherine Hepburn, which she's obviously related, yeah. and asked uh, Hepburn, well, can she act? And Hepburn said, well, I don't know. I haven't seen her act since she was six. <laughs> That's going to be my only Catherine Hepburn okay. impression. Uh <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't feel very good about it. And she introduces uh, Catherine Houghton to Stanley Kramer. Catherine Houghton has no idea that she's up for auditioning for a movie or anything. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, they're walking through the airport. They get into a cab. The cab driver is white. He looks mm -hmm. up in his rearview mirror and sees the two of them kissing. Now, let's start here. Yes. Look at the difference in approach, right? She is this kind of ray of sunshine. Her clothes reflect that. Her hair is loose. And, you know, there's there's just such an energy about her that just conveys the sun. And here comes Sidney Poitier, who is, we find out later, older, about 15 years or 13 years or, or senior. But he's wearing a nice suit, button-down suit. He's very controlled and, and composed with himself. They're having fun. There's genuine love there between them, even, uh, you know, playing with her hat and whatever. So... We're seeing immediate, and the they're landing in San Francisco, and San Francisco, all those people coming out of the plane. It's a very diverse group of people. We see Asians, other black people, white people, maybe mm -hmm. some Latinos. So they're land, they're landing in the right place in their minds, and they're in, and I think Stanley did this on purpose. I'm going to set this, as he said, with the liberals, but I'm going to set this in San Francisco, which of course you know, Steve, hate Ashbury. This this is the height of liberalism is in San Francisco. The Graduate also isn't that set in Northern California as well. The, so the Mrs. Robinson and the family is in Southern California. No, sorry. She goes to school in Berkeley. Yes, Berkeley. So this idea that like this is the place to kind of make a commentary is fascinating. Uh, uh, 100%, I think. And, and San Francisco is a classically liberal city. I mean, yeah. you know, old school liberal city. Um, mm -hmm. This scene, a black man kiss a white woman. on This mm -hmm. is crazy on a movie yeah. screen at this time. Right. A few years earlier when Poitier won the Oscar, and Bancroft is the person who presented him the Oscar for Best mm -hmm. Actor, and she gave him a hug. 
And yeah. that was scandalous. It was. You know, yeah. when was uh, the Shatner kiss with 68? So it's so after, just a so year it's later. The, it's a, it's yeah. a year later. It was the wow. first interracial kiss on TV. Wow. This is a really big deal. You know, I just had a thought. Hmm. Why don't I go check in a hotel and get some rest and you go find your folks? Oh, <laughs> John. You wanted to meet them? Let's go meet them. The sooner we get it over with, the better. <laughs> and this is what we're setting up is that yeah. he is going to meet her parents and she thinks it's not going to be a big deal. Right. No problem. <laughs> you may be in for the biggest shock of your young life. After 23 <laughs> years living in the same house with them, don't you think I know my own mother and father? Which, by the way, eh, maybe she doesn't quite as well. As yeah. Well, what a surprise. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we head to a gallery, which uh, her mom runs, and they go inside to this art gallery, and there mm. is Hillary, who yeah. is the manager of the gallery. She's played by Virginia Christine who is the Folgers coffee lady from when we grew up with those Folgers coffee commercials. Right. (laughs) And they're looking at some weird sculpture, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which totally reminded me, by the way, of Beverly Hills Cop. I wanted uh, Serge (laughs) to come in and say, you want some espresso? Um, Achmel? Achmel? Axel. Mrs. A. George, I'd like you to meet Dr. Prentice. Dr. Prentice, I'm so pleased to meet you. And you can tell. Yeah. This woman is a curious, mm-hmm. b disapproving, yeah, c probably kind of a racist. Yes, and here we are, as you said, landing in the hub of liberalism, which is San Francisco. And here we have the first kind of older white woman they run into, and she's—you can tell—maybe not a racist, but certainly, well, maybe a racist, but certainly shocked. And then underneath there is that color of racism for sure. But I also want to point out here, this is ironic because art is supposed to be the thing that breaks new ground and show mm. and, and, to, and you know kind of um, it inspires you to think differently about something or challenges you as a viewer about your well-held beliefs about something, right? As an appreciator sure. of art. And the installation that Spencer uh, that uh, sorry, Sidney Poitier turns on, I think is very fascinating because it makes this whirring sound, mm. Steve. So there's this undercurrent of uncomfortableness from natural sound from a thing they've put in the scene, which I think is brilliant. It's subtle, it's slight, but it's there bubbling on it, almost conveying what her mind is going through as she's seeing this. And that we, as the audience are experiencing as we're watching her face very clearly convey that she is unsettled by this development. Right. And, and processing. Really, yeah. So, so I'll tell our listeners something funny about how the show gets made is yeah. that, I, you know, I make this huge document that has, you know, everything that happens in the movie. And then as we're going, I'm looking and going, well, I don't have to spend too much time on that because we, you know, we don't want this thing to go on forever. And then you bring up an amazing point. So I was going to kind of skip over the sculpture, but that was an amazing point well, that I I mean, never yeah. occurred to me. I think that's why our show works, brother, man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, and, and like I said, watching it this time, I was able, and I think because we do our show, my mind and the stuff I do, you know, now right. for a living, my mind is attuned at times to my catch everything but certain things pop out in ways that they didn't before and, I, and, and it was really fast and it's portier who comes back and turns it off yes that's a good that's so a good point very um, interesting. well and, and this is the thing that sculpture was a choice yes you know what i mean absolutely it wasn't like an accident that that thing's there so it actually bears some scrutiny and, mm-hmm. the, and the most important thing to watch is after they leave and are cute and romantic you see her face hillary's face just turn yeah very very cold Yes. 
Very cool. We're back in the cab and we talk about how all the amazing decisions that her mom has made at the art gallery. And this is, is a thing I think we could skip over. Yeah. Um, and we come to a very, very fancy house. It looks like it's up in Pacific Heights, which is the really rich area of San Francisco. Mm. And there's one of the things that's amazing, and particularly if people have just watched In the Heat of the Night, because that's the episode we just re-released, yeah. contrast Sidney Poitier's performance in The Heat of the Night yeah. with this. Yeah. He is so gentle in this yes. film yeah. and so cute and bubbly and and there's so much going on with him in every moment, including this where he's just trying to get a tip for the cab driver and he puts on the silly hat. Yeah. It's really, really cute. What do you think about that moment though when he goes 1050 pal and he gives him twelve dollars and he's and he just pauses the guy and goes, Yeah. That seemed like there was even an undercurrent of racism there that he was taking that this old man had lived long enough that he is now faring around the people that he probably looked down upon when he was younger, and now they're reaching above their station to become doctors and what have you, and he's still a taxi driver. Well, so I, don't I, know. I, I think it's 100%. I think it's more than that, though. What yeah. is the first thing he saw? Right, them, them kissing. kissing. Yeah. yeah. I think I think he, it's 100% he is not happy with who he just had to drive around and what they did in the vaccine. Right. 100%. Good point. We go inside this house, and let's be real clear. <laughs> Joanna or Joey's family, they're rich. These are ultra rich white people who are yes. very successful and they've raised a free thinking daughter yes. uh, who is very privileged. We would say that in 2021, extremely privileged, yes. so much so that she's so oblivious to thinking that this would be an issue. But Catherine Hepburn has a great retort later to that point in the I, movie. She absolutely does. But yeah. it is there's so much that uh, that she is not aware of. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, and cause even like, I mean, you know, you, you've gone home to some girlfriends folks house. Yes. Can you imagine if you walked into this house? Uh, I did walk into a house like this a couple of times yeah. as a Latino dating a white girl in Southern Virginia. Mm. I've had this experience. I've had this concern, this worry. This has always been a thing. Listen, those country boys don't play. And the dads are very clear when you're not white, how they feel about it. It wasn't all the dads. But certainly I had three or four experiences where I've walked into a house knowing immediately that the father was not happy to see her white his white daughter dating a Latino yeah. guy. Very well, And one of the things that I think they really avoid entirely mm -hmm. is there's a whole class issue here. Yes. But we're not really going to deal with that. Like everyone adjusts very easily to being in this really fancy place, I think. Hmm. We'll see. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to meet Tilly. Yes. Oh, Isabel Sanford. Oh. So first of all, she's she's an awesome actress. And of course, we'll later see her in All in the Family and Jefferson's. Yeah. She got paid 600 bucks a week. Oh, wow. Um, and this is a big gig for her. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is shocked to see. First of all, she's surprised that Joey's home early. Yes. And then the fact that there's this black man with her, she is not pleased. Right. And she doesn't know anything about him, but she sees him in a suit. Yep. She sees his, how good looking he is. And immediately she thinks that he is taking advantage of Tilly. Like that's yep. what, with just the staring and all of it. She is just kind of grasping and she, and, and, and look, I am not black. So I'm going to offer my opinion through that perspective. It, having, 
you know, I'm not Catherine Hepburn here saying, you know, the black people in Africa or anything, but I have grown up with numerous black friends, had numerous conversations about movies about, in fact, one of my, uh, literally my best friend who is black, legitimately, Maurice, he, I texted him, we were doing this movie and we went into a, you know, 30 minute text exchange about how much we like the movie at certain points. And he points to this situation and the speech later with his dad as something that really struck him as a black man and the classism that exists even within the black community. For him, that's, it was interesting to see that being highlighted in this movie. That's totally true, by the way. And, and yeah. I definitely am wrong because uh, because in this instance, there definitely is a thing going on. I find the writing yeah. of Tilly to be somewhat ham-fisted, you know. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I just find it a little. I would have I would have wanted it to be a little more subtle. It's it's fine <laughs> when it gets really not. I mean, it's you know, we'll get to it. Okay, um, but she's clearly not that pleased. And Joey asked for some sandwiches out on the terrace, mm-hmm. and they walk through this very fancy mansion. <laughs> Do you like it? And again, Fadi is so cute. He goes, "It's beautiful." <laughs> and they walk out on the terrace, and then he says, "Oh, what?" Hey, and sees a beautiful young black woman. Yeah, and that's Dorothy, who works there, helps mm-hmm. Tilly out during the week. This is her name is Barbara Randolph. Okay. She is the adopted daughter of Lillian Randolph, who that name I didn't know, uh-huh. but she was the maid in It's a Wonderful Life that comes in. It's, it's, yeah. Um, who is so who's so great. It comes oh. in and it's, I've been saving up for a divorce. If ever I get yeah. me a husband, that's yeah. that, that's the adopted mother of this person. Wow. She was a Motown singer. She never had a huge career. Right, but right. she opened for Marvin Gaye. She toured with the Four Tops, Gladys wow. Knight, and the Pips. Like that's mm-hmm. the world that she was in. And there's just this one moment where he kind of makes a sort of sexual yeah. innuendo kind of joke, yeah. um, which is really the only somewhat sexual thing we get to see from Sidney Poitier. Yeah, she was um, also a member of the Platters. So if you ever listen to the Platters, oh, you hear her voice. Yeah, nice. But yes, yes, and, and she was almost a member of the Supremes. Oh, so really? Throw that in the mix as well, yeah. Um, but yes, it's a weird moment, isn't it, Steve? Like, he is flat out, like, interested in her right in front of Joey. And I don't, if, I don't know if it's on purpose to kind of be playfully make her jealous a little bit, but she rolls with it. Like, she's just like, yeah, it's cute. Come on, act out here, blah, blah, blah. I, yeah. I, think it, I think it is on purpose. That's what I think it is, to mm-hmm. playfully make her jealous or kind of as a little joke. But yeah. I also think it's weird that the one... Um, african-american woman that's of his age mm-hmm. is he's immediately and this is all about him being in love with a white it's weird i think it's a okay weird moment she's beautiful i think it'd be weird she's if she stunning. was stunning yeah that's what i'm saying i think it'd be weird if it was just a you know plain uh a, a plain actress but she's got a nice aura so you can understand why he would be attracted to her but i'd take your points too well it's like i 100 percent understand why you'd be attracted to her yeah I'm attracted to her she's gorgeous yeah, she um but it's like I, I go like well why why did you want to have this in here that's, yeah that's my i thought thing. so too that was weird too i agree i mean yeah. just like the same thing with the delivery boys like why are we my watching this <laughs> you know you know i ought to call my folks and get that out of the way okay use the phone in the study okay. are you gonna introduce me not on the phone. Aren't you going to tell them about me? I'd rather write to them. This comes up several times. Yes. He, he, he does not want to tell them over the phone. Mm-hmm. He wants to write to them instead. Are we going to keep our marriage a secret from them? Why didn't I think of that? See, that's a thought. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes into the to the dad's study, 
and he's alone, sits down at the table. There is, of course, a picture of FDR on the desk, <laughs> just if we hadn't made the point that these are old white liberals. And we hear uh, the theme, the you got to give a little mm -hmm. playing in the background. In fact, it plays throughout this whole movie. Yeah. Do you remember what other movie we worked on that opened with a theme song and that theme song became almost the entire score of the film <laughs> um offhand a, i don't it's probably it was a, million a long moves. time ago yeah the movie is high noon oh right yes produced by stanley kramer that's right oh interesting okay yeah. i feel like that was used for a commercial campaign but i don't know um tilly talks to joey well, I got a right to my own opinions, and you want my opinion. I don't care to see a member of my own race getting above itself. And at this moment, this is the only angry moment we see from Joey. Then I don't want your opinion, and if I ever do, I'll ask for it. And she starts to get mad at Tilly. Yeah, she does. And then switches it to Sweet, and she says, Oh, Tilly, I'm sorry I didn't mean that, but, but you can't mean what you're saying either, and, and you're so wrong. Look. You're the last person I'd have expected to take such a silly attitude. What do you think's going on in this scene? Oh, well, first of all, it's reflective of the fact that this is something that we've seen in numerous movies through the years, right? Where the maid, the black maid who has raised the white child, uh, has a little more leeway to express her opinions with the white child, usually a female child. We saw it in The Help recently. Yep. Yep. Uh, you saw it in uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. Um, not which recently, to, which led to an Oscar for Hattie McDaniel, but we've seen this happen. So to me, this was a believable exchange between these two women. And it was just there to kind of highlight this approach that the older black generation has to the younger black generation who is coming through and in essence, benefiting from the fights and the wars that the older black generation has gone through in this country and there's a little bit of resentment there. And so I think that's where she's coming from. And then later, of course, she flat out accuses him of being a huckster and a, and a smooth talking, whatever in a Dutch angle, which is an interesting yep. choice by Kramer. Um, but yeah, that's, I think this is just everyone stating their case and making it very clear to her where they stand on this whole situation, creating conflict, I guess. Uh, again, this is what I love doing the show with you is I yep. asked a question and you answered it perfectly, but that was not actually what I was asking about. Oh, um, and, but your answer was great, and I'm so glad you did. What I was asking about is yeah. is Joey's what she's saying to Tilly. Oh, oh, you can't mean that either, and you're so wrong. Um, right, and you're the last person I expected to take such a silly attitude. She thought that she would be all for the fact that she was marrying a black man. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing is that it's also strangely condescending. Yes, it is. But you know, once again, you say blind spots. The white people have blind spots all over the place about race, well, not in, unintentionally. Well, and this is the thing is that I I think Joey is a somewhat problematic. Here's, here's what I mean mm. by the movie taking a rhetorical stance. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the movie is to focus all of your attention only on the idea of whether or not they should get married. And to take out any other possible reasons that might distract from that. So what, what I mean is, is that the right decision, according to this film, is to mm -hmm. let them get married, which, of course, I think is the right decision, too. Um, and okay. 
I mean, <laughs> I think interracial relationships are fine. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no, I, I got no issue with interracial relationships, but if you're talking specifically about this situation, I'm way more on Spencer Tracy's side and the dad's side. Oh, uh, me too. Right, yeah, okay, good. All right. um, um, I mean, I'm, th- well, and this is, but this is what the movie is trying to do, is to eliminate any other reason why, so if he showed up and he was mm-hmm. poor, Right, right, right. Well, then you would have a, a a thing of well, can you support her, and that would distract from the right. racial question. But, is but I do think bubbling underneath, Steve, is this idea that especially now in twenty twenty one, I don't think when it came out, and maybe there were some scholars, maybe uh, someone like uh, it was a James Baldwin would have looked at this film, and maybe he's spoken about this film and caught the undercurrent here that is happening, but that is uh, occurring here, whether Kramer wants to say it was in the film or not, but. This is also an indictment on how um, white people, how much black people have to scale the heights yes. in order to be considered remotely Acceptable. okay for yeah. their daughter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this is well, th- that is the critic. That is one yeah. of the many, many criticisms of this movie. Yep, it, it's that's why I go. It's like I like the movie, I enjoy it. It totally moves me at the end, a hundred percent. Right. But I also go like it is a very specific. I mean, this is a movie really directed at white people, you know. Yeah, white liberals specifically. White liberals specifically. And yeah. here, here's one of the reasons I bring this thing up. Catherine Houghton came to uh, Stanley Kramer and was like, "My character is so naive. Yeah, and so can't she have more? Uh, can't she be more aware and have more of an opinion and more understanding?" And Stanley Kramer said, "No, it's better that she is just." the blossoming image of perfect love that mm. will make this more persuasive. But I also think unintentionally watching it now, she is, she represents young white people at that time, no matter how liberal or marching in the street, especially a 23 year old who's been sheltered by her parents and been able to have everything she could possibly want. Of course she has this kind of attitude that it's not a big deal. That why is it making such a big fuss? And, you know, sometimes that attitude can win the day. A person who is a battering ram of positivity can win the day. But when they're that young, they can be a bit oblivious to what's going on in the world. And I think this was Kramer's indictment a little bit on the young white liberals at the time in the late 60s who didn't really understand how the world actually worked because a lot of them had come from privileged upbringings to sit there and lead these movements. I mean, Abby... Uh, what's his name? The homie from Charles Chicago Seven. He came from a privileged. Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman came from a privileged fucking family. Uh, Castro, as a Latino example, came from a privileged fucking family. Right. So it's yep. this idea that these a lot of the times these movements are led by motherfuckers from a privileged fucking family trying to rile up people from the lower classes or lower financial classes, I should say, to stand up and risk their lives for this movement so that they can benefit from it. And so in a way, I think he's making an indictment on young white liberals as well as calling out old white liberals in this movie through the character of Joe. See, but that's exactly what I think the movie doesn't do. I Because I, I, yeah. to me, like, they never engage in that. Like, we don't see that. I do, because it's so blatantly obvious to oh, me. But I I'm see saying, that. You, okay. No, I see that it's missing, though. Like, what I see yeah. is, like, they don't show us, they don't show us the racism. They don't show us like what we sit well we'll we'll get to it later yeah yeah we'll get to it let's keep going yeah um uh sorry sorry. no 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 not at all um but the other thing though is like uh, this is 1967 Mm -hmm. in san francisco this is literally the summer of love yeah yeah and she is so far distant from anything that actually is going on in youth culture at this Mm -hmm. moment Mm -hmm. 
she is a totally privileged, sheltered in her little rich world, you know? Right, right, right. right. Which, 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 by the way, uh, <laughs> yeah, this, I think we're, but this is obviously a two-part movie episode because we're at 43 minutes and oh. <laughs> we're sorry, barely sorry. into the film. Sorry. No, no, it's, it is what it is. My mom's first cousin, there are pictures of her in 1966 mm-hmm. and she's, you know, a teenager and she is a full debutante, like with the <laughs> pillbox hat and the pretty dress. And there's pictures of her in 1967 and she is a full hippie. Like, and she <laughs> literally like lived on a commune. She, yeah. and to this day, she's now in her late sixties. She goes to Burning Man every year. Wow. Like she's was, she had the full rich girl to hippie transformation. Right. Right. Um, anyway, <laughs> Um, so moving along, <laughs> in comes Catherine Hepburn. Do I hear someone? Is oh, there someone here? Oh, Mom, I'm so happy. I've never been so happy in all my life. I'm just bursting. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and I'm already feeling happy for you. Do I know him? So at this moment, she's like, my daughter's in love. I'm super happy. Yeah. And she says, I, I've never known anyone like him. Never known anything like this. I fell in love with him in 20 minutes. And then we cut to Sidney Poitier on the phone with his dad. Well, fact is, Dad, I met this girl. You what? You met a girl? Why didn't you say so? Mary, he said you met a girl. She live up there in San Francisco? Yes, yes, she lives up here. I'm at her house now. Uh, This is quite a surprise. And Sidney, again, he's so cute in this movie. Yes, she's surprising in a lot of ways, Dad. (laughs) And (laughs) this line is funny. Dad, there's one or two problems, you see. That I'll write to you about on the plane to New York tonight. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting uh, part of his character that he's like, you know, because it mirrors, obviously, her. Her, she's like, completely, no, come on over. Everybody come over. And um, Sidney, because he's older, that character that he's playing, Sidney, he is concerned about how people are going to because he's lived in the world a little bit more than she has uh, not as sheltered and he's seen it so there's a different approach and but with his parents he gets reduced back to being a scared kid who doesn't want to upset his folks which is a nice color to have on him well and i we don't get to see that conversation of him saying no joanna this is actually this is a big deal right you know that's what that's what i mean of like the things that we don't see you know well, he tells she alludes to the fact that they've had these conversations, yes. though. So the conversation has been had. You you want to see it as well as what you're saying? Am well, I clear for clear? On what that? what I'm saying is that this movie is about really centrally. Will Spencer Tracy say it's okay for them to get married? I don't agree with you at all. That oh my, the, this is fascinating. That is the whole drama of the movie. The whole drama of the movie is their relationship. Well, I don't think says so yes or no. I know that's that's why we have two different approaches to this film because I think him saying yes or no is absolutely irrelevant. I think she's going with him with everything. It's he an says, eight yes or minute no. speech at the end of the film. Oh, we'll get to the straight white male school and everybody in the room later. But that is what it, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, let's get to that. Later. <laughs> so by the way, um, Catherine Houghton would rehearse with Stanley Kramer, and then in would sweep Catherine Hepburn and say. Is that how you're going to play the scene? Of course she did. (laughs) And she, you know, this puts Catherine Houghton in a really complicated position. She goes, this is how I've been directed by Mr. Kramer. (laughs) And that apparently went on throughout the entire shoot. Um, Horrible. Horrible. He uh, he was married before and and he had a a son. It was so tragic. 
Both his wife and his son were killed in a train accident in Belgium eight years ago. Yeah, wow. Uh, which I think is a really good setup for the character. I agree. And what an interesting name, though, Steve. John Wayne. Yeah. Interesting. John Wayne Prentice as it's a really it's a very white name white name yes and as she's describing him and has not gotten to the fact that this is a black man he walks in mm-hmm. and Catherine Hepburn has a reaction it's a great reaction I think Catherine Hepburn I think Catherine Hepburn is great beginning no. to end in this yes. film yeah and the way the steps of her getting herself sort of under control mm-hmm. and her you know trying to be polite and is is really well done Dr. Prentice, I'm so pleased to meet you. I'm pleased to meet you, Mrs. Drayton. (laughs) And then I love this. Mrs. Drayton, I'm medically qualified, so I hope you wouldn't think it presumptuous if I say you want to sit down before you fall down, I mean. He thinks you're going to faint because he's a Negro. (laughs) Uh, And Tilly's made sandwiches, so they head outside, and Tilly, as she's serving them... (laughs) Her displeasure is very, very clear. Yeah, she throws the coffee mug at yeah. him across the table. Yeah, and this is where, like, this is the if I was writing this movie, I would have it be subtler. Do you, can I highlight something that you're saying right now? Yes, you want the uppity Negro to be more si- more subtle. I mean, I'm telling you that that to me has been hitting me when you say that. Who's the uppity Negro? She is because uppity. she is voicing her displeasure loudly. And there, that's a thing that, or voicing her displeasure by her actions in a very profound, noticeable way. And so to me, you're saying you want her to be more silent with a protest or quieter so, with a protest. So first of all, not, I'm trying not, to clarify that with you. Yeah. Uh, but before I get to that, that's not yeah. my understanding of the ter- the meaning of the term uppity. Oh, my understanding okay. of the meaning of the term uppity is someone is that, uh, that she thinks that Sidney Poitier is uppity. That it's someone who is acting above their station. That's no. that's what I always thought the definition is. Well, uh, uppity Negro, I, as I've understood it, is someone who, uh, a black person who talks out of turn, who is of lower station. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, according to the dictionary, it is yeah, self-important at, or arrogant. Right. That's, that's more what I think. Okay. But you don't think she's being arrogant by throwing that coffee at her, at him, and then right in front of her... Uh, uh, white employers and anything like that arrogant no um okay. i think she's being very strong in her displeasure okay. i to me so so i totally take your point yeah i think it weakens her as a character i think she's ah. a stronger character wow. if she was uh more in control of this but we have that already with the with his mom later so to have had two well, the two women be more subtle with their approach to their displeasure. That's a really good point. That's a yeah. really good point. I like I the balance, it. but I take your point. I get where you're coming from because you're looking at it as a director and what you think the effective uh, approach would be here. But I like that we have two different approaches for the black women. In I t- well, it, and we'll get into yeah. uh, Bea Richards character because that mm-hmm. is a whole, that is a whole thing too okay. um, to talk about. And we hear a little bit that dad is going to be playing golf with Monsignor Ryan and that they have to talk it over dinner because John is flying to New York. And then tomorrow night, he's flying to Geneva to do three months' work for the World Health Organization. And what I intend to do is fly to Geneva next week so that we can be married. And that's the whole situation. In a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, he's a really, he's a very uh, important person, clearly. 
He it was accomplished well, a lot. Steve. This is what I mean by stacking the deck. Yeah. There can't possibly be any reason to object to this person other than that. he's. And that's what I mean by it's, it's, a, it's like you're doing a scientific experiment and you want to eliminate all the variables except for the thing you're testing. Yeah. And so they're eliminating any possible reason to object to this relationship other than race. Right. Yeah. And, but I think Stanley Kramer is doing this on purpose because he's got to make this palatable to 100 percent yeah, in, yeah. In the, so you have got to present the best in his mind the best version of a african-american man so that people watching it in 1967 might think twice about some of their own racist tendencies or racist points of view that, that's what i mean why i wanted to say at the beginning i'm going to point yeah. out things it's not a criticism i think yeah. stanley kramer is doing exactly what you just said yeah he is trying to that he's making an argument to be palatable to a certain group of people yeah you know and and that is how this is working Absolutely. I love the line. I told him 97 times that it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference to you or to dad, but he just wouldn't believe me. And that's why he's watching you so closely right now while he's pretending not to watch you at all. <laughs> that's one of the moments where I really see their relationship and why yeah. she, why he loves her. And then they talk about like, maybe there's a, a, a softer way to introduce this idea to dad <laughs> when he gets home. And we're going to have to do it right now. Cause here comes Spencer Tracy. Right. And he runs into Tilly, who tells him all hell's broken loose and there's a doctor here and he's now worried about there's a doctor, something happened and Joey's here and he comes out and there's a big hug. And then we have this scene. And what I like, too, by the way, so on this one, they just introduced John without saying anything about the relationship. Right. And you can see how Spencer Tracy's character reacts to a black man in his house without yeah. this relationship stuff. Yeah. No issues with him being a doctor is actually pretty impressed by that. Very Nice guy, right off the bat, the, you think, in, in that moment, yeah. I, and I would say we have, he has no reaction to him being a black man. Yes. It's just, this is, oh, this is an yeah. interesting person to meet. Hello, nice to meet you. Uh, uh, were you practicing in San Francisco? Well, no, not, I'm not uh, established in any one place. I'm in tropical medicines, mostly in Africa these past few years. Oh, well, that sounds interesting. Everything about Dr. Prentice is interesting. <laughs> and this moment's great. He says, well, I'm sure wish I had more time. And he walks away and then he stops <laughs> and he turns around. I love that he's loosening his tie and says, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and they all kind of look at each other. And it's like, well, this plan didn't work either. See, we have a sort of a situation here. Joanna and I didn't just meet in Hawaii. We spent a good deal of time together. I mean, all the time uh, after we met and well, we have this problem. Which, by the way, that's where if I was dad, I would go, wait, is she pregnant? Like, which would be really yeah. too fast to find that out. I fell in love with your daughter. And as incredible as it may seem, she fell in love with me. And we flew back to San Francisco to see if you or Mrs. Strayton would have any objections if we got married. And there's some reactions to this. <laughs> and Joey, who thought her parents were just going to be great with this situation, goes, Daddy, you're making John and me nervous. Am I? Well, I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to make anybody nervous. How about you, Chris? You nervous? Sit down, doctor, before you make me nervous. <laughs> I do love Spencer Tracy. He's so good. And, and the thing is, he comes in, as you said, Steve, very nice, very on top of things, very cordial, super accepting of it. Not an issue with uh, with John being there, uh, Dr. Prentice being there. Uh, and then he when he when he grasps what's happening, he slips into dad mode pretty quickly. Because I imagine he's had some 
strong conversations with Joey over the years um, uh, with her free spirit and her approach to the world and blah, blah, blah. So he immediately slides into this and and says, oh, I wouldn't want to upset anybody or or make anybody nervous. You know, it's great. So good. And Joey just basically lays out like that. She didn't know she would fall in love with a Negro, but she did. Nothing's going to change it. And she says, even if you had any objections, I wouldn't let him go now if, you are the governor of Alabama. I mean, if mom were. So tell him, will you? Tell John if you have any objections, and then you could go play golf. And dad is not prepared to respond to this. Yeah. Which, by the way, and this so this is the thing, is I complete just taking race entirely out of it. Okay. If my son came home and said, I met someone 10 days ago, and we're going to get married. Oh, yeah. I would be shocked, and I yeah. would have reservations. Yeah. Like I'd be, whoa, 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 slow your roll, Jax. Like maybe we should think <laughs> about this stuff a little bit. These are very important decisions. Yeah. Like I, to me, dad being shocked and taken aback is perfectly natural. What is it you expect me to say? If you want me to think about this, you'll have to give me time to think about it, won't you? The doctor says you have a problem. You certainly have. And if you're expecting any sensible statement from me, you will have to give me a little time to think about it. Does that sound reasonable? Yes. That's why I'm confused when you say stack the deck, because it feels like there's enough here to show multiple points of views about the situation and give whatever hesitation that uh, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy have as the parents some legitimacy aside from the race, uh, the possible racism or uncomfortability with an interracial relationship they might have, which is not 100 percent, as we find out later in the film coming from a place of necessarily racism it's more concern or worry yeah and maybe with hints of it for sure but like certainly that moment is very clearly um yeah that. You, you know what the difference is between you and me i think on this yeah, is that yeah. is that there are subtle things that aren't overtly happening in the movie that uh-huh. you are responding to oh totally that i am going i want that to overtly happen or or, or is that is that like you so want, you want the quiet parts to be loud and the loud parts to be quiet. <laughs> well, no, what I'm saying, <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that <laughs> if dad said, Hey, wait a minute. I just think this is moving too fast. Yeah. It's not about a race thing. I, w- if he said what I had said, well, then we would have been engaging in that idea, but I don't think the movie ever engages in that idea. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that we see the, the struggles that they're going to have to deal with in life as an interracial couple because we don't ever go out in the world, you know? We don't, but they're very clear about it. They speak about it. They highlighted it. They they put it in the table. And I think this is, but I think this is also Kramer was like, I only have so much budget. No, I agree. You I think that's why he's doing it that way. Yeah. All everything in the house. Yeah. That's why. Well, I think it's also why he's, we want to focus in on this thing. Yeah. Like they don't talk about, well, uh, how are you going to raise your children and all the, they don't talk about where are you going to live in different places. And they, they, we yeah. just don't engage in those. What, like at the end, which we're now seven parts away from, but yeah. at the end, when Spencer Tracy makes a speech, he says something like, well, we all know the problems we face. And th- so we don't even have to talk about them. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, actually, you kind of, you know, I'm not saying you do, but there are a lot of things that aren't being talked about, you know, yeah, um, because that's not what they're focusing on. And so we now we know what the situation is. He's leaving tonight. She's going to fly to Geneva to marry them. And they have to react to this right now and he does say actually he does say what the hell is all the rush yes he puts it on the table yeah are you saying are you are are you telling me that you want an answer 
today about how your mother and I feel? Well, of course we do. We want you and Mom to state absolutely clearly that you have no objections whatever. And that when we do get married, we'll have your blessing. <laughs> this is where I just go, she's just kind of naive and... Yes. Um, Very much so. and, and you know where also that is my cynicism about love and relationships. It's like, right, right, right. I mean, like you and I once had a argument about me basically saying, whoa, whoa, not everyone's perfect and there's problems yeah. and, you know. Ironically, like, with one of the most imperfect relationships I ever had in my life. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's because true. because you can be in a moment where everything seems perfect. Right, right. You know. But um, I, I want to make it clear, although, and I, at least from my point of view, we are commenting on Joey's, at times, privilege, at times, yeah. shelteredness, at times, obliviousness to how tough it's going to be. That doesn't mean that that isn't a necessary energy for us to get to that spot where we lay down our issues between the races once and for all, we come together as we were meant to be living together in harmony. And so for all the cynicism and criticism and all the, the older folks have in the movie and we had now have as older men, Steve, her attitude is the attitude that we might've had when we were younger and with the desire to create a world where it's not a big deal. And that's the overall goal of most people who fight against racism is to achieve a world where it isn't that big of a deal. And so for all the criticisms we may have of her in, in our conversations here, she also has an attitude that is a, a, a hopeful attitude and a utopian attitude, an idealistic attitude that you hope the world does achieve one day. I, I think that is a fantastic point. And I think particularly when I first saw this movie in high school, yeah, this was because and there's different ideas. Like one idea is that we all should become colorblind and people are just people. And we just sure. And I think when I was a kid, that's what I thought. You know, and then right. it's funny that we're doing um, a whole, you know, series of, of episodes on Spike Lee. Spike Lee is the opposite. Yes. You know, Spike Lee is going, this is complicated. People are difficult and filled with all this stuff. And he wants to show all that to you. And this yep. is a very simple kind of look yeah. at a very idealized situation, right. you know. Now, are you going to play golf or no? No, no, no. Uh, I'll just call it off. Excuse me, doctor. And he leaves, and Wadie asks, does he like me? She goes, I don't know. When he puts on his American Eagle face, nobody can tell what he's thinking except Mom. <laughs> his American Eagle face is great. <laughs> I wonder if that's an inside thing that they wanted to put out. <laughs> um, it, it, it totally is. It's, it's funny because it's later, but it's Sam the Eagle from the Muppets, man. <laughs> There's some definite Spencer Tracy in there. That's a great point, um, yeah. So it, he's in his office. And he does says two things. One, cancel my golf appointment. And two, he wants his assistant to go do some research, some background checking mm. on this guy. Terrible. Terrible. Tell me something. Did this ever occur to you that this might happen? No. Never occurred to me either. Not once. Well, can you tell me your reaction? How do you feel about it? And Catherine Hepburn has pretty much shifted over pretty quickly. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I was shaken at first. I still am, I suppose. But... Matt, they're serious. They mean what they're saying. Both of them. They know what they're doing. And he says, and I think this is a great line. No, they may mean what they're saying. I accept that, but they don't know what they're doing. I won't accept that. <laughs> I think that's certainly true of Joey. I don't think Joey knows what she's doing. Yeah, maybe. I think John Moore knows what he's doing. I'm just saying, I think he's, again, and I think this is what gets reminded or what he gets reminded of later on in the film is this idea of like, you know, 
Young love is like this, whether you're black or white or white yeah. and white. Young love is like this. You take the chances. I mean, I knew, I mean, my girlfriend and I, we knew within two weeks. Right. I, I did. Was I in love with her within two weeks? No. But I knew, you know, pretty quickly. And sometimes it can shock you how quickly you can know. You know, It, it is funny because it is such a young love movie, even though he's a 37-year-old guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. What who's say, who's had real bubbly. tragedy in his life. Yeah, he has. Yeah. surprisingly very well composed for having lost his daughter and his son and cute and sweet thing. like yeah yeah um, charles foster kane wasn't like that <laughs> no well he was messed up before he lost his wife that's and his true. son that's true um so but speaking of which john knocks on the door and comes in and wants to speak with them privately and he basically tells them about this decision he, he's made joanna thinks she's committed and that our whole future is settled but there is no real commitment and up to now, nothing has settled at all. I don't understand that. Joanna said you're going to be married no matter what we might think about it. Well, that's not the case. Unless you two approve, and without any reservations at all, there won't be any marriage. I appreciate that, Doctor. It's uh, almost in the form of an ultimatum. Which is an interesting <laughs> pronunciation. Yes. Not quite, Mr. Drayton. All you have to say is goodbye. And then he thanks them for the opportunity to speak to them, and he walks out. Is what John's doing fair to them? No, I don't think so. I think it's awful. (laughs) Awful is a strong term. I just don't think it's fair. But please explain why you think it's awful. Maybe that is is too strong a term. (laughs) But it's like putting your whole marriage on. Because again, just taking the race part out to say that people are unreservedly going to support this marriage of people you met 10 days ago. It's like, that's just not realistic. And to place the entire burden on your daughter's future happiness on you making this decision in the next four hours, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a lot to throw on these people. And I don't think this is fair. You're absolutely correct. And I think that's, what's great about the film. Every single person has flaws in this movie for all the, and I, they call it what the magical Negro. It's all the stuff they talk about here nowadays in the last few decades, that term uh, that Sidney Poitier represents in this movie. He too has his own flaws in how he's dealing with this and how he's approaching yeah. this. He's letting her take the lead. You're a 37 year old doctor yep. like you. And it's not about, you know, controlling the relationship. It's about saying, no, we're going to take this step by step, piece by piece, week by week. You have just as much say in this relationship and you're allowing her to take the lead. There's a little bit of fault there. And then all of a sudden you're putting it on these people you just met less than an hour ago. Yeah. All this expectation about their relationship. And then you're saying, no, you just have to say uh, goodbye. goodbye. And that's not true because they have to say goodbye to someone that she loves and break their daughter's heart. That's yeah. a fucking hell of a thing for to put on a parent for sure. Yeah. You can understand why I said awful. I mean, this is a lot of yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I but I like that everyone has their flaws. So it's not a how can I call it? How can I say? Well, it's not an I mean. ultra liberal fantasy. It's actually calling out some things that are every nobody's clean in the movie a hundred percent, which I like. Well, that's why I go, I'm not criticizing the movie. Yeah, I yeah. am criticizing the people in the movie. Sure. Well, like it's your it's your point that I think I hadn't thought about ju- just that way, but yes, she is one hundred percent taking the lead. Yeah. And and therefore, the most naive person and the most sort of, you know, rainbows and lollipops person yeah. is the one who's driving the bus on some level. She's the one that is. And she's also the one confronting all the um, uh, if you mention if you say the bus analogy, all the speed bumps and the potholes. She's the one driving 
uh, the bus when they confront them. So she's confronting them first, mm. you know? So it's well, interesting. And this is what I mean by the conversations we're not having. And again, I'm not criticizing mm. the movie, but we don't hear him say like, listen, when I was in medical school, I had to travel through the South. Yeah. And there, I had, there was 300 miles where there wasn't a bathroom I could use. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, yeah. talk about sundowner states and things like that. And that if you marry me, then you're going to have to experience that. There are going to be places that we can't live. There are going to be places that people are going to, people might be violent towards us. People yeah, are yeah. going to say things to you. We don't see, now maybe he had that conversation with her, but we don't mm -hmm. see it. It's not part of the film. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And right. like, and those would be very sobering things. And if he had really laid it out in a harsh way, right. she wouldn't be all rainbows and sunshine. You know what I mean? She, they wouldn't approach it this way. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. The, yeah. Anyway, yeah. the next moment is really great because Catherine Hepburn says, he's right about Joey too. You know that, don't you? Yes. And thank God he is, Matt. That's the way I feel. Thank God he's right. She's 23 years old. And the way she is, is just exactly the way we brought her up to be. We answered her question. She listened to our answers. We told her it was wrong to believe that the white people were somehow essentially superior to the black people. Or the brown or the red or the yellow ones, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> um. And when we said it, we did not add, but don't ever fall in love with a colored man. It's a great speech. Yep. One of the, the basic principles, the idea behind the movie is the someone expresses a, a liberal civil rights minded thing and someone else asks, but would you let your daughter marry one? That is the heart of this film. Yeah. You know, mm. is that question. And what I really, and what I really like about it is that is a, where the rubber meets the road because yeah. we can all be, and this is what, this is where I think the movie is so smart is that we can all be really liberal in the abstract. Yes, of course. It's when it's brought face to face and you have to make a decision. That's where it's hard. It's in practice. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and then the phone rings and his assistant gives the most ridiculous resume of this guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And they find the $2.20 he left because he wanted to pay for his call to L.A. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, he's pretty perfect. <laughs> but he, can also, um, he can also afford it. Yeah. Well, this the money stuff is weird because his parents seem to have a way more money than I feel like they should. Uh, and maybe he's maybe he's sent paying money back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, tell me, what do you think? Aren't they exactly the way I said they were? <laughs> and it's like, no, they're not. Um, clearly, they're not exactly how you said they were. <laughs> Shall I tell you something? What's that? For a whole week, I've been nervous. No, I don't believe. Oh, not about what they'd ultimately feel, just about their first reaction. I thought it was just possible that for the first time in 23 years, they might let me down for the first half hour. So she did have some nervousness about yeah, it. Yeah, she did. And then we're back with Chris and Matt, and there, which is Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, in case I hadn't used their names before. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about that she was just always this happy girl, and it ends with... I feel happy for her. And proud of the fact that we helped to make her. And whatever happens now, I feel glad that Joey's Joey. And she cries. Catherine Hepburn, by the way, is on the verge of tears through a lot of this film. Yeah, it's really incredible to watch. Yeah, well, moments. part of it is that she's with the man that she loves who's yeah. dying. Yeah, I mean, true. that's why that's why I go, you can't, for me, I can't separate the fact mm. that everybody working on this set knows that this is his last film and that he's right. probably not going to live very long. Okay, we got to the delivery boy. <laughs> yeah. 
I, it always cracks me up when the older generation tries to do something as if they understand the younger generation. Because <laughs> everything about this is just phony. But I think it's also Kramer making fun of yeah, of young generation. people yes i think he's making fun of them dancing in, in the streets like that and whatever but it also highlights that i think he's also subtly saying that the younger generations are the ones that are going to figure it out because though it's a black woman and a white man and they're dancing and there's no comment about their race at all she says hey can you take me down to here he's like yeah i'd love to and uh, takes her and so it's i think if for as much as he might be making fun of because it's such a weird sequence but uh, he's also kind of highlighting in a subtle way that it's the younger generation that care that's going to destroy this racism or so we thought or so we thought because certainly we're back in the shit pile again here recently in our country so and around the world so first of all i can tell you that you are 100 right that is exactly oh. why stanley kramer did this is that oh. he wanted to show that this wasn't a big deal to the younger generation right and, but i'll also say he thought he was totally hip and he thought that the young people <laughs> would love this movie <laughs> And he was not correct. <laughs> Tilly is looking out the window at John talking to Mr. Drayton and yeah. says, Civil rights is one thing. This is something else. <laughs> and now we're with Chris and Joey and they're ironing a shirt and she's telling how they fall in love. And one of the bits, which is cute, is that she keeps stopping ironing and is going to burn the shirt. Yeah. 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 And it's just crazy. And I admit it. But hey, 20... you better let me do this. 20 minutes later, yeah. I felt I was in love with him. Mom, how long did it take you to fall in love with Dad? Oh, well, nothing like so long as 20 minutes. <laughs> and they hug and they laugh. And then this is kind of fascinating. Joey, I want to ask you something. How deeply are you and John? In and then she won't finish the sentence and says, <laughs> no, I have no right to ask. <laughs> but Catherine Houghton gives an answer. Do you mean if we've been to bed together? I don't mind you asking me that. We haven't. He wouldn't. This is exactly what one of the criticisms of Poitier in films from the African-American community, from the younger African-American mm. community at the time. One of the ones was that he was unsexed. Was that there was yeah. no, you yeah. know, is that he had, because, because sexuality from an African-American man was threatening to the yeah. white race. And so they didn't let him do things that were sexual. Yeah. You know? And the idea that he's the one who said no to sex. I don't think he could have been in much doubt about my feelings, but he just wouldn't. So she was willing to have, wanted to have sex with him, and he said no. I get the complaint, you know, and I understand the complaint. But I also think you got to understand things in context, which is this is 1967. And I don't mean you, obviously. I mean the people who had an issue with this. Portier still broke the barriers, broke the walls down. So that you could have a black exploitation films in the seventies, so you could have more films that had black leads in the seventies into the eighties, nineties. What I mean, Denzel said, "I walk the steps that you have walked, and proudly so." And so, for all the criticisms of that, it's 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 an, it's an indictment on the white culture. And and but it yes. wasn't like Sydney was just along for the ride with some some dumb black no. man who got used. He understood that this was the way to open the door and whatever was going to happen afterwards was going to have to, there's no Spike Lee without Sidney Poitier. I hate of to fucking not. break it to you and to people who are criticizing this. So I understand the criticism, but I also think I don't put any weight in the criticism because you have to understand society as a whole. And this was their way of walking. I mean, if he was off having sex with her in every other scene, 
it wouldn't have had the effect. And because then it would have been some, a, a completely different kind of movie. This is a pure love movie. And so yep. you're going to show that. It's not that it can't show pure making love. It's not that kind of movie yet. And so it's like, this is the thing that you're uh, talking about. And so I, yeah, I always get frustrated when people say that because they don't have any fucking concept of what it's like to actually break the um, walls down or be the first person through the wall. Because the first person through the wall is never the person who's doing it 100% completely right. It just never is. And so, but they're at least breaking through the wall so that you can get through the wall and future generations. I, I think this is such a critical discussion because, yeah. first of all, the idea of blaming Sidney Poitier for this is just completely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's like he, he's walking a tightrope. He's not writing the movies. Yeah. You know, and he is, you know, the as you said, the first guy through. And this is why it's like, I don't hate joe lewis because i love muhammad ali right you know right, what i mean right. they did different things yeah what's what's weird about this is that sitting poitier is like joe lewis or jackie robinson in the era of muhammad ali and so what's happening is this 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 crossing mm. of cultural moments because right. right. this is 1967 the black panthers were formed last year right you know like you know this is this is the movement has is changing it's, right and this is a movie that is of the earlier era it has, and again, it's not a criticism of City Poitier. I don't, right. think, I don't think this is a criticism of the movie. Yeah, I think it is merely a statement about different ways to approach the same topic. You but know? there, there hadn't been a Joe Lewis in the acting world until right. no, that is so, Sidney Poitier, right? So he is the, and that's a, that's an indictment on again, again exactly. on liberal Hollywood. That liberal Hollywood itself was behind the curve when it came to civil rights. When so many people, and you know, we have people who listen to us who are conservatives, who, are, who sometimes get upset with our politics. Let me tell you something: we will go after liberals as well, and I have no fucking problem doing that. And certainly, here is an indictment of Kramer, in a way, is indicting white Hollywood liberals, white uh, yeah. uh, rich liberals, but also Hollywood itself. If you look at it in perspective, uh, you can indict Hollywood itself for not getting a Joe Lewis until 1967. Yep, uh, and when it should have been in the 50s. Uh, or Jackie Robinson, which was also in the 50s. So the fact that Hollywood, which kisses its own ass for being so liberal, uh, is so far behind the curve with this is uh, is a true indictment on itself. You know? Well, and as you say, there can't be Spike Lee and all these other things. Yeah. And, and, you know, like that's the thing is that that's why blaming Sidney Poitier is such a ridiculous statement. Yeah. Yeah. But there were horrible, horrible articles written about him. In, oh, yeah. You know. They called him a, a a Negro in white face. They called him, I mean, just yeah. terrible, terrible things. Yeah, bullshit. So he's getting attacked. And the other thing is every single person working on this movie got death threats mm -hmm. from the, you know, from racist right. right. And right. so like that, 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 and so Poitier is getting it from both sides. He's yeah. being, has death threats against him from the KKK and from the African-American community. The, they're attacking him for being a sellout. Yeah. Yeah. But, and again, I understand where they're coming from and the point of view that certain people have about that, about Sidney Poitier in that way. But I don't, I just don't agree with it, but yeah, but they have every right to have that point of view, obviously being black, their experience is more valid than mine in my point of view. So about this. Well, I think that, that, that we have room for a multiplicity of opinions and a lot sure. of the, and it's like, this is the year of Bonnie and Clyde and the graduate and mm. in the heat of the night. And guess who's coming to dinner. Right. That's why that book is about this year, because this is, old Hollywood and new Hollywood. This is yeah. when things are changing, you know, I need to get this book. <laughs> There's a very strange scene with Tracy and Poitier where he's talking about, uh, that black kids are better dancers. Yeah. That's oof. 
That but, is but, like the, yeah. But the dialogue here is great because Sydney Sydney doesn't say we just have better rhythm. Sydney says it's our music. Yep. You took our music. It's yep. our things that you're dancing to. Rock and roll, in essence, is black music that Elvis and other people took and made you know uh, made success off of. So naturally, black people have an instinctively better approach to dancing, which I don't know if you agree with it or I don't know if it's true, you know, sociologically true or not, but certainly it's a valid point to bring up, I think, because I and also another subtle shot here at the um, co- uh, the uh, colonizing that white people can do sometimes with black people stuff. I think it's a very good argument back. And I did mm-hmm. not know the Watusi. Do you know where the Watusi comes from? No. It become, comes from the Tutsi people in Africa. It actually is uh, an is African-based African. dance, yeah. which I never knew. But the other thing, though, is the Watusi is like six years old. You know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> yeah. that's like 62, 63, maybe. Right, right. It's not 67. I remember when I was about your age, my sports editor telling me that Negroes would never be able to play baseball. Oh, I suppose if he wanted to, Willie Mays could be elected mayor of San Francisco. Yeah, Willie Mays. Yeah, the great Willie Mays. Yeah. Which probably was true. Yeah, probably. I mean, there was no more popular person than Willie Mays in San Francisco. Say hey, kid. Doctor, we've talked about a good many things. But there's one thing we haven't talked about. Have you given any thought to the problems your children are going to have? Yes. And they'll have some. This line line rubs me the wrong way. And we'll have the children. Otherwise, I don't know what you call it, but you couldn't call it a marriage. Mm. Yeah, that was weird, right? It's, it's, talk about outdated points of views. Yeah. Is that the way Joey feels? She feels that every single one of our children will be president of the United States, and they'll all have colorful administrations. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that he says, you made her. I just met her in Hawaii. <laughs> and do you, have you noticed that almost every time John tries to make a joke, it goes flat? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd settle for Secretary of State. <laughs> and he laughs. And gets nothing in response. Don't you think this quick decision about how we feel about this thing is just a little unfair? In a way, I do. But it wasn't my idea that everything be settled so quickly. Your daughter said that there's no problem. She said, my dad, my dad is a lifelong fighting liberal who loathes race prejudice and has spent his whole life fighting against discrimination. She said, my parents, well, they'll welcome me with open arms. And I said... Oh, I sure want to meet them. Again, I go like the way that that John is handling this is just kind of unfair. Yeah. I mean, this is a, I mean, walking in and going, hey, they said you were super liberals. I'm waiting <laughs> to see it. Yeah. He's kind of indicting it. But, but then again, I mean, on the other side of things, you can look at it from his perspective is like, well, you guys say you want all this and you want, I'm going to put it on the table for him and make you confront it. So in a way, whether he's out of turn or not, I find it interesting that he's in their home uh, kind of dictating things to them. So I find that an interesting wrinkle in the film. Well, and you know, and what it does is it focuses again, it focuses exactly on the question that Kramer wants to analyze. Yeah. You say you're a liberal, prove it, prove it. Right. Talks to dad again. I just had an idea. What would you say to us flying up there to spend the evening? evening i thought maybe we could take you and your young lady friend out for a big spread and she gets on the phone and says uh mr prentice 
Won't you come to dinner, you and Mrs. Prentice? John and I'll meet your plane. And, of course, they say yes. So at half past six, they're going to be at the San Francisco airport. So now we have one more thing to add to this problem. Uh, Just to build up his character even more, Spencer Tracy tells Catherine Hepburn about the unbelievably brilliant medical plan he has for educating kids in Africa. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is what there's this is like a Nobel Prize level guy that is dating their daughter. Yeah. Then this line I find really interesting. I want to break it down a little bit. I asked him how he uh, got so far. You know, he's only 37. Yeah. He said <laughs> he thought he got the best breaks because everybody he met didn't want him to think they were prejudiced against him. <laughs> so here's why I think that's a really interesting line. I think that line is entirely to assuage white guilt. And what I mean by that is that the goal of this movie is to talk to liberal white people. Yeah. And so if if he pointed out racism that had been against him, you might turn off those liberal white people mm-hmm. who would mm-hmm. go like, oh, this is about I don't want to hear this thing about racism. Right. But if you say this thing about I got all the breaks because people were afraid to let them me think they're prejudiced. It's like then it's like, oh, actually, it helped this guy. Yeah. That there's prejudice in the world. It worked to his advantage. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is a weird stance to me. <laughs> but I understand why it's in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, his father is a mailman, mm. retired now, lives in Los Angeles. Now, how do you suppose a colored mailman produced his son with all the qualities he has? Um, It's a fascinating moment here when he says that, right? Because it's like the entire society since the birth of our society has been about highlighting people who have come from not so great means or come from simple folks and are and have achieved incredible stuff right and so it's fascinating that um they gave this line to spencer tracy's character to say you know how could such an incredible man come from a a, just a son of a mailman and it's like what the fuck was elvis presley's dad what the fuck were the beatles parents what the fuck were like you can go through all these white people who have achieved so much who had who had parents with you know menial jobs or labor jobs or simple jobs whatever you want to classify them as and were able to create incredible stuff i mean shakespeare's dad was a fucking landowner that's it yeah so it's like apparently it's okay if white people achieve so much that they achieve from humble means or from parents that aren't necessarily considered uh you know working incredible jobs or having incredible lives but it's shocking that a black man of such esteem would come from a retired mailman i just find that fascinating well, and I don't remember, but my memory, I don't think Spencer Tracy came from like a wealthy no, background or I'm anything. Sure he didn't, yeah. Probably why he drank so much. It's well, well, it'll be interesting when we get to his parents because yeah. the way they're cast and care not cast, but the, the way they're characterized is very interesting. Mm-hmm. In general, I don't like it when you use the title of a movie in a movie. <laughs> I do like this one because yes. she says, Guess who's coming to dinner? Who? You mean? His parents, first, it wasn't going to be a marriage unless we approved. Then we had one day to make up our minds. Now we have to spend hours entertaining somebody we never heard of. What the hell is coming off here? <laughs> so <laughs> Grumpy old man. <laughs> Which, you know, it's totally true. He's, I would feel this way. I would feel exactly this way. He's Carl. He's being Carl from Up. What the hell is going what on? What the hell is going on? Just I mean, leave if suddenly, me alone. <laughs> if suddenly I had to just, even if just it sprung on me that I had to entertain a bunch of people I didn't know in my house, I would be feeling a little grumpy. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, put, put upon, yeah. 
Let's beat Monsignor Ryan. Oh, the the uh, the superstar of the movie. Let's do it. C- Cecil Kellaway. Oh. Why are you here when you should be in Hawaii? And what is the problem that caused your father to check it out in our game of golf? Hmm? Gets introduced to Dr. Prentice and hears that they're going to get married. And he has zero reaction. Yeah. Other zero. than wonderful. Dr. Prentice. <laughs> well, of course. You're the problem. Yes. <laughs> I'm afraid I am. <laughs> and Joey goes off to uh, tell Tilly about more people coming to dinner. I suppose you two have had time to consider what you're doing. No, we've not. Which is, again, to me, it's like, yeah, maybe you should consider this. <laughs> maybe you could just slow, yeah. slow your roll. Yeah. And it ends up not only is he doing incredible work, but Mike, the Monsignor, has heard of Dr. Prentice. Yeah. This is a famous guy. He read about him in the magazine, yeah. And he heads off to see Matt. Mike, aren't you just a little shocked? Shocked? Why should I be shocked? I've known a good many cases of marriages between races in my time. Strangely enough, they usually work out quite well. I don't know why. Maybe... Because it requires some special quality of effort, more consideration and compassion than most marriages seem to generate. I that's a great line. It is because, once again, just like people use this argument against gay marriage. It's I was going to say thing. it's exactly the same thing. It's so funny to me when straight white people pass judgment on the sanctity of marriage as if they haven't done incredible shit to destroy the yeah. sanctity of marriage. You know, when they go against interracial marriages, the same old shit gets trotted out and using God and religion to do it, which is really offensive to me as a Christian and a believer in God. And then doing the same thing when it comes to LGBT, when it comes to gay marriages, whatever LGBTQ or uh, trans orientation you might have going after those marriages, claiming, Oh, it's you're, you're, you're sullying the sanctity of marriage. Straight white people have done quite enough to, or straight people in general, sorry, straight people in general have done quite enough to destroy the sanctity of marriage and their own behavior. So you miss me with that nonsense. So for him kind of laying it down, and you can tell that's affecting um, Catherine Hepburn's character as she's hearing Monsignor say that, which I think is really powerful. That's a beautiful thought. You do have beautiful thoughts, Mike. (laughs) Well, because I think... I think she had leaned in the direction of supporting them and right. then was starting to be genuinely happy for them. This statement reaffirms what she, that she's going in the right direction. Yes. You know, right. the thing that I think, by the way, and I totally agree, like the idea that straight people have been rocking marriage for yeah. history is insane. <laughs> and, but the other thing I think that's really important is like, look, if you're a gay marriage or an interracial marriage, it raises the degree of difficulty. Yeah. You know, so that means you're going to have to face stuff that the straight white marriage or straight same race marriage isn't going to have to face. And therefore it does take more compassion and patience and consideration because it's harder. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, just like, you know, if someone is a family is really struggling for money, they're facing challenges that the rich family is not facing. Yeah, exactly. You know, great point. And then Hillary shows up. (laughs) My dear, Joey tells me that congratulations are in order and that you didn't even know. There is such, I think she plays the perfect level of cattiness. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, the, yeah. I, I am feigning being supportive, but I, in fact, am here to look at your suffering. And Chris takes her outside, and the first thing Hillary says is, Christina, oh my poor dear, what a shock for you. Because she thinks she is going to connect with her boss yeah. on how horrible this situation is. Yeah. 
darling, what you must be going through. He was trying not to worry about it. Oh. And then this is this is great, and Catherine Hepburn is great. Yeah. I want you to go straight back to the gallery. Start your motor. When you get to the gallery, tell Jennifer that she will be looking after things temporarily. She's to give me a ring if there's anything she can't deal with herself. Then go into the office and make out a check for cash for the sum of $5,000. Then carefully, but carefully, Hillary, remove absolutely everything that might subsequently remind me that you had ever been there, including that yellow thing with the blue bulbs which you have such an affection for. Then take the check for $5,000, which I feel you deserve, and get permanently lost. What do you think of this scene? I don't like this scene. I was going to ask you that. That's yeah. what I was going to ask. Why I'll don't you and, like it? And I'll tell you why. Because it's played for populist reaction in the theater. Yes. Right? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you're in theater and people are like, yeah! You know, white liberals clapping their hands at themselves. Totally. But she was she has been questioning this relationship the whole fucking movie. So for her to get some kind of, you know, um, I don't know, hero moment in this at, at Hillary's expense, I thought was... Uh, wrong and i also in retrospect now looking at it, it looks it looks bad and also you hired this person and she has worked with you probably for Long quite time. some time so for you to all of a sudden have a moment where you know you you have some morality in the situation is i found it to be very hollow although i understood the the intention of stanley craven to put this scene in here because essentially he's telling racists to fuck off but I think uh, Catherine Hep- if Catherine had been like like Mike had come in the Monsignor had been no problem with their relationship no issues with then sure let her have that moment but when she was questioning it not sure of it and she's coming around and you don't know if she's coming around because she's okay with it or because she loves her daughter because uh, those are two those could be two different things uh, I don't think it's I don't think it strikes the right chord watching it now in 2021 I'm sure when I watched it the first time I had no problem with this scene but now I do. I think this scene is totally designed to make people go, yay. Yeah, I exactly. think Catherine Hepburn is great. I think it's done in a really fun way with the start your engine and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think none of us like Hillary. True. But I I agree with you. It's like her own husband is struggling with this thing. Yeah. And yes, it. I think we can say that Hillary is not going, I worry about, I'm not a racist, but I worry about what yeah. might happen in her. She is a bit of a racist. Sure. But the thing is, firing someone from their job for being a little catty is not cool you know what i mean like like she hasn't done anything overt right she's done exactly like what we would call microaggressions yeah and and like and and so i just think it's it is such a it's exactly what you said it's like the whole family i mean dr prentice's parents are going to have problems with this too it's like so so yes it's a hero moment but i think it's i agree with you it's kind of hollow it is hollow, right? Yeah. And it's interesting that she goes back inside and Joey goes, Mom, ah, do you know what Hillary was doing? She was being an absolute bitch. She was. I almost wish you'd fire her. I really do. And she doesn't tell her, that's, which is interesting, that she yeah. did just fire her. Yeah. Back outside and Mike is really starting to realize that his old liberal friend is having some real problems with this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Mike. I wish I didn't have the feeling that they'll never make it, that the whole thing's impossible. And this is the moment that Mike kind of goes, oh. Oh, you feel that way, do you? You're really thrashing about then. Yeah. And, and I like that he's kind of enjoying <laughs> Matt's struggling with this. He says, 
That's very interesting, and very interesting indeed, and rather amusing, too, to see a broken-down old phony liberal come face-to-face with his principles. It's a strong statement from yeah. a Monsignor. And then even goes one step further and says, I always thought there was a closeted bigot hiding underneath some of your indignations. I'm like, wow, that's, that's a big statement. Yeah, the, the coming face-to-face with your principles is one thing. That's But there was, I always suspected you were a bigot. <laughs> that's a lot. Oh, go to hell. You and your crowd are still preaching hell. Nice little shot of religion there. And then he's leaving saying, I got to help some souls before dinner, but then just totally slides in. I am free for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, he's not going to miss the show. He's not going to miss the show. And maybe, of course, because he's my senior, he wants to be there in case any fireworks break out. But he's not going to miss the show. I think it is 100% both. (laughs) Please, please come. 7.30. The doctor's family are flying up from Los Angeles. Oh, well, in that case, you'll actually need me. Otherwise, your side won't even outnumber the blacks. <laughs> oh, man. Interesting. That, that, that line just kind of dies, yeah. dies flat, I think. It does. It does. And but, then but, him, him, yeah, him walking out singing the Beatles is weird. <laughs> we can work it out. I know. 1960s. I'm sure the Beatles saw that moment and were like, oh, my God. Well, and it seems pretty clear he's never heard the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's not rid of it. We could work it out. Yeah. Yeah, 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 we can work it out. <laughs> Is there any truth to the rumor that that was the reason they stopped touring? Was the fact that an old man was singing? <laughs> <laughs> um, we're in the study and we're holding up a little statue that looks like Spencer Tracy. Mom did it. Do you think it looks like him? Well, guess what? Catherine Hepburn really did make that statue of oh, Spencer wow. Tracy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, which is cute. And in comes Mike, tells them that he's invited himself to dinner. Uh, and then shakes Dr. Prentice's hand and looks at them and says, with so much joy, and this is why I love this guy, and I think why you he says, You know, you two make me feel quite extraordinarily happy. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You you signal the a possibility that is great for our future. You too. You signal that, and I and he takes that moment to really embrace it. And by the way, this guy Cecil Calloway was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this mm-hmm. performance in this movie. So, and you see why he's so good. Well, what I think you know, what you said earlier about each of these people having their flaws and representing sort of different things, I think mm-hmm. is really key. And I think the thing about Mike is he, along with Joey, in a way, is the purestly positive person. Yeah, right. There isn't a racist bone in his body. Right. Right. He is just a, a happy, supportive, joyful person. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy and Dr. Prentice's parents and, and Tilly all have to confront mm-hmm. different parts of what they, you know. Yeah. Because I bet if you went to Tilly in the abstract and said, you know, there is this colored doctor who is doing all this tremendous work in Africa and he's, mm-hmm. you know, he could get the Nobel Prize. What do you think about that? She would say, that's amazing. Yes. But when he comes into her house, that's a different reaction. Right. Yeah. And there's also an undercurrent in the black community where uh, when black men marry white women, that it's like, oh, none of our black women were good enough for you. You had to go and marry a white woman. And so there may even be an element of that kind of playing underneath, too. But so I wish that was see that's what that's what I was like that's, that's what I wish movie, that she though, said bro. yeah, yeah exactly how, I that's mean how thing. progressive was Stan? I mean, you're not going to get that from Stanley Kramer of course you got that from Spike for sure of, down the road of course not yeah. um so we've got 
quite a dinner party coming. Yes, we, we have. First of all, John, the new fiance, has showed up. His parents are flying up from Los Angeles, who John don't know that <laughs> the girl that his son is in love with is white. Yep. And they're going to come to dinner. And not only that, let's have Monsignor Ryan also at dinner. This sounds like it's going to be quite a dinner party. Poor Tilly. She's got to order more steaks, man. She's got to get more steaks. Uh, so at this point, I think it's a good moment to end part one of our exploration of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think of this incredible film. Obviously, John and I had a lot of opinions, and there's a lot kind of to dig into here. So visit us on our Facebook page or follow The Cinephiles on Twitter at Cine underscore files on Instagram at The Cinephiles Podcast. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And on if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a nice review. If you're on Spotify, leave us a rating. If you're on YouTube, leave us a comment. We love interacting with you in all of those places. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can buy or stream Guess Who's Coming to Dinner along with every other movie we've ever reviewed through Amazon Prime at cinephiles.net. And you can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris1 on Instagram. And as you know, I do a Star Trek show. And so in about four or five months i'm gonna do the first interracial kiss ever on star trek from the episode plato's stepchildren so uh that's enterprise incidents john how would people find you yeah you can always find me at the roca says on twitter and on instagram on tiktok at the roca says as well and then uh, roll on over to uh twitch the outlaw nation all one word there and that's also the name of my youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says just type in the outlaw nation and john roca and it'll come up so thank you so much and uh, I think that is it for this week. And we will be back next week to conclude our exploration of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner right here on The Simpsons.